And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Good. It's like the first absolutely beautiful Saturday of the year, basically. Yeah. It's like up to 23 degrees. Yeah. We got to spend a lot of it outside helping with your mom's garage sale. Yeah. Um, so it's been a, a good, busy day, and as a redhead, I am lucky to not be sunburned. Used a lot of sunscreen today. <laughs> What's 23 degrees in Fahrenheit? 23 degrees Celsius is like 74 degrees Fahrenheit. There you go. So that's what the temperature was. Yeah. Uh, 23 degrees Fahrenheit is like minus 4 degrees yes, Celsius. I, yes, I am aware. Okay, okay I just thought it was funny that people were thinking that I was needing sunscreen for minus four. Right, sure. How are you doing, Ben? About the same as you. Fairly well. Enjoying the sun. A little warmer than I would like, but who's complaining? So Sounds, sounds like you're complaining. <laughs> me? Complain? <laughs> Unheard of. What are we watching today, Ben? Today, Sarah, we're watching The Mad Ghoul. Oh. From 1943. I had never heard of this movie before researching it for this show. It's definitely one of those, like, slip-through-the-cracks kind of movies, I think, where, like, it's not a big-name kind of movie like your Draculas and your Frankensteins, but it's also not, like, so ludicrously terrible that it, like, rises up to its own, like, infamy, like your Devil Bats or your Corpse Vanishes. Uh, who's the studio? This is a universal picture. Oh, so, like, you'd think people will have heard of it. Well, the thing is, is it's a Universal B-movie from Ben Piver's uh, unit, which, like, if you think about who's doing horror at Universal right now, they're all kind of B-movies in terms of... Budget? Yes. But there's definitely, like, a, a higher and lower cast, basically, system in place. Like, because you have George Wagner's unit that's making your... Wolfman's and your family operas and your Wolfman versus Frankenstein's and things like that. And then you got Ben Piver's unit that's making, you know, your mummy movies. Which have been fairly good. I mean, does their placement on the list really... What was the one where it's like the mummy comes to America? That was Mummy's the... Tomb? Yeah, that was Mummy's Tomb. Yeah, that one's great. So I think the fact that this is from... They're sort of B-movie unit. Within the B-movie unit. Right. And it's also not a name monster. It's not The Mummy, it's not Frankenstein, it's not The Wolfman, right? I think that's maybe why this one's less known. So the director for this movie is James P. Hogan. That sounds like a wrestler's name. I mean, only because of Hulk Hogan. Fun fact, growing up, I thought it was Hollywood Hunk Hogan. That is funny. (laughs) So James Hogan directed his first feature film in 1920. Oh, wow. Yeah. His credits include a number of films in the Bulldog Drummond and Ellery Queen series. Okay. I haven't heard of either of those. Bulldog Drummond is kind of like a 
kind of a pulp detective adventurer kind of guy. Sure, that's kind of goes with his name. And Ellery Queen is a mystery writer who solves murders. Well, like Murder, She Wrote. Right. So his last film prior to doing this one was The Strange Death of Adolf Hitler for Piver's B unit at <laughs> Universal, which is a movie about a German who disguises himself as Hitler to get close enough to Hitler to kill Hitler, but then because he looks like Hitler, is just, like, stuck being Hitler, and then, like, his wife, who's in the resistance, thinks he's Hitler and tries to kill him, or something like that. That sounds bonkers. Yeah. So, The Mad Ghoul would be Hogan's first and last horror movie, as he would pass away eight days before its release of a heart attack, dying at the age of 53. Wow. That's fairly young. Yeah, I suppose. Um, I always think of, like, Ian Fleming dying in the 60s at age 52. Yeah, but Fleming put his body through things, you Sure, know? sure. But, like, everybody did back then. Like, people just weren't taking good care of themselves. Clearly. The star, as it were, of the Mad Ghoul is our old buddy George Zuko. Ah. Who we last saw in Dead Men Walk for PRC. Since then, he has appeared in three films including Sherlock Holmes in Washington for Universal. Where Sherlock Holmes goes to Washington? Yeah. Does Sherlock Holmes meet Mr. Smith no. in Washington? That's... Nope. <laughs> <laughs> the title character in The Mad Ghoul is portrayed by David Bruce, a 29-year-old actor who had been born Martin Andrew McBroom in Illinois. He went to Hollywood in 1940, and his agent changed his name and then got him a contract with Warner Brothers, where he became drinking buddies with Errol Flynn. He was released from his contract to join the Naval Air Force in World War II, but he was discharged due to a chronic ear infection. Upon returning to the U.S., he was given a contract by Universal. That's when he made this and some other movies. Uh, and then they chose not to renew his contract when it came to the end of its term. So Bruce acted for Columbia until retiring from acting in 1956. He died in 1976 at age 62. The female lead here, once again, is Evelyn Ankers, making her fifth Scream Scene appearance. In a supporting role, we find Robert Armstrong, who's most famous for his appearances in the films of Marion C. Cooper. He was Carl Denham in King Kong and Son of Kong, uh, Martin Trowbridge in The Most Dangerous Game, uh, Max O'Hara in Mighty Joe Young, etc. Okay. Popular sex symbol Turhan Bey, who we last saw in The Mummy's Tomb, also appears, as does Milburn Stone, who we saw as the lead in Captive Wild Woman. A more surprising reappearance is that of Rose Hobarts in a minor role. We last saw her way back in the 1931 Jekyll and Hyde as Muriel, Jekyll's fiance. Oh, yeah. Huh. So The Mad Ghoul was released on November 12th. 1943, so the day after last week's movie. And it's available on DVD from TCM. Oh. Either by itself or as part of the Universal Cult Horror Collection with Murders in the Zoo and Mad Doctor of Market Street. Mad Doctor of Market Street isn't a horror movie, TCM. Yeah, but it's a movie that you can throw in a box set with some horror movies. There's basically a 50-50 chance... That the Mad Ghoul is not a horror movie. <laughs> Based on those odds? Yes. Right. All right, well, let's find out. 
<laughs> well, folks, if you would like to watch along, head over to TCM.com and figure out how to order a DVD. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Mad Ghoul, directed by James P. Hogan from 1943. See you on the other side, everybody. to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Mad Ghoul, directed by James Hogan from 1943. Ben, you awake? Yes, I'm awake. I was kept awake by this movie. It didn't put me to sleep. But I do know why no one's ever heard of this movie. It's fucking trash. Yeah, it's real bad. The script is real bad. I feel like George Zuko is really the only actor who bring something to Mm -hmm. the roles that they've been given. There's certainly, like, a hierarchy in the cast between good actors who are trying with bad material, good actors who are just sort of sleeping through bad material, bad actors who are trying with bad material, (laughs) and bad actors who aren't trying. But let's let's talk about the story first. Uh, yeah, we might need a map. It's not so much... Sort of, in the sense that, that, like, nothing happens, but... The story isn't complicated. It's it just bonkers. doesn't. It just doesn't make any sense yeah. because nothing is happening for a reason. It feels like the kind of movie that was written by writers who had no knowledge of like how to write a horror story, but kind of knew what the like tropes of the genre were, and are just kind of throwing them together without really giving a shit. Yeah. So George Zuko plays Doctor Morris. Morris. And Dr. Morris is a chemist, he teaches at a university, and he's explaining to his students how back at one of the most famous temples, the natives made a gas that kills you, but not really, because you're alive in death, or dead in life, whatever the (laughs) fuck that means. I think these are supposed to be Mesoamericans, judging by the style of art that he's showing on the slides, and the fact that this is also tied up with the fact that the natives practiced sacrifice and took people's hearts out and stuff. Yeah. But he never says, like, Mayan, Aztec, Toltec, Inca. He just says, the natives in the temples made the gas. And it doesn't help that our setting is University City. (laughs) Uh, Ben had a great joke during the movie that all of the cities that we visit in this movie could be names of cities in Pokemon. Yeah, they have names like Mid-City and Riversville, and, like, Valleydale. Like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's fun. Mount Green. So, he explains to the class that he's working on replicating the native gas. But, Who knows why? Yeah, I mean, he's a scientist. After class is dismissed, he explains to one of his star pupils, Ted, uh, that he needs an assistant over the summer break. Ted is a, like, surgery student. Yeah, he, like, majors in surgeon. Yeah. But uh, Dr. Morris needs his help. So Ted comes over and Dr. Morris explains, I am not planning on replicating the gas. I have replicated it. As you can see, I have used it to kill or not kill or something this monkey. And you can bring the monkey back 
out of this state of non-death. It's like a comatose state, presumably dead, but has a beating heart. Yeah, and and if you stay in this state too long, you will die. So you can bring them back out of it by cutting the heart out of someone and then extracting something out of that heart and injecting it into the thing, which apparently is what the natives were doing when they were cutting hearts out of people, not appeasing their gods, which means that this native process was step one, make gas to kill someone. Step two, kill second person. Step three, use heart from second person to bring first person back to life. Step four, profit. (laughs) And Dr. Morris wants to replicate this for reasons. Profit? Yeah, like, I don't understand what the application for this would ever be or, or how you would apply any of this to the rest of science, but the movie doesn't even bother to come up with an excuse. However, this is where Ted comes in. He's a surgeon, so he's going to cut a heart out of a live monkey, and then they're going to inject heart bits from the now-dead live monkey into the live-dead monkey and bring the live-dead monkey back to life. <laughs> they successfully do this, and Dr. Morris is like, this would be rad if we could do it on a person. And Ted's like, I'm sorry, what the fuck? And Dr. Morris is like, no, 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 I, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> so Ted has a girlfriend. His girlfriend is Isabel, and Isabel is a famous singer, like on the radio and has records famous, goes on concert tours famous. She's, I have a feeling that she's up and coming, you know? She's yes. trying to get her foot in the door. Yeah, but she's not, like, singing in a nightclub trying to make ends meet, you know? Like... But she, yeah, she's not like Bing Crosby either. No one's like Bing Crosby except Bing Crosby. <laughs> so she's like a, if you're not familiar with like 1940s music, she sings like... Vibrato. Vibrato, yeah, to a piano. She's not like a pop star, I guess, to whatever... Unless that was pop star in four... I, I, I guess I'm trying to say she's not doing like swing. She's not doing music you dance to. She's yeah. mu- doing music that you sit in a theater and fall asleep to. Dr. Morris is like, hey, to celebrate our successful science, why not invite Isabel over for dinner? And Ted's like, cool. And it turns out that Dr. Morris has an ulterior motive for this, which is he wants to fuck Isabel. Which, you know, brings us back to the old, like, the older guy wants the younger girl plot line that we used to have in these movies, like, right after the code. Yeah. Anyways... During dinner, at one point, Ted's kind of out of the room, and Isabel confides to Dr. Morris that she actually doesn't love Ted anymore. And Dr. Morris is like, really? Well, my dear, what if I could get Ted to break off the engagement for you so you wouldn't have to go through the painful process of breaking up with him? And Isabel's like, sweet, I don't like confrontation either. Good stuff, Dr. Morris. So here's Dr. Morris's plan for breaking up Ted and Isabel which is the stupidest, most convoluted nonsense I've ever heard. Step one, he exposes Ted to the gas. (laughs) Step two, Ted turns into a zombie. (laughs) Step three, now that Ted's a zombie, Dr. Morris tells him, Isabel doesn't love you, she She loves loves me. me. Also, you're under my control, and we need to go to a cemetery and dig up a dead guy and cut his heart out. Recently dead. Recently dead. So that, uh, you know. bring you back. Yeah, so from zombie state. Yeah. So they go to the cemetery. He has Ted dig up a coffin. They open up the coffin. And then Ted just, you know, in a suit. And when he's in zombie form, he like, you know, has bags under his eyes and sunken in cheeks. And he's all like 
looks like he's uh, he a looks raisin. Like the zombies from the uh, Romero Mall movie, Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, in black and white. So I guess he looks like a Night of the Living Dead zombie, but yeah, but like with like mummy skin. Yeah, yeah. So so Ted pulls out an exacto knife. Uh, and it's a scalpel. It's like one small scalpel that he does an entire heart surgery on a dude just lying in a coffin in. And then, you know, you would think that the reason why they wouldn't go to the trouble of bringing the guy back to their lab and doing this in like a lab setting, why they're just doing this in the cemetery, is that you could just stuff the heartless body back in the coffin and throw it underground and no one would be the wiser. But they just leave that shit there. So the next day, the cops are like, fuck, who digged up this body and cut a heart out of it? Who digged up this body? <laughs> and that's when we are introduced to McClure, the hotshot wisecracking reporter, played by Robert Armstrong, who's like, I'm going to solve this case. So Isabel is going on tour, and Ted was supposed to wish her goodbye. And he was also going to take that as an opportunity to ask her to marry him. And they keep changing whether they're already engaged or about to be married. Well, it's I, like they've had a very long engagement, and he's like, "No, but like maybe we get married tomorrow." And she's like, "Yeah." Maybe. Except she, he hasn't like actually asked her to marry him yet. I feel like what it is is Ted's the kind of guy who goes, who's been dating her for long enough that he tells all of his friends that she's his fiance, but he hasn't actually broached the subject yet. So because of the whole zombification thing, he missed when she was leaving, and she's left on the concert tour without him. But he awakens the next day, totally healthy, not a zombie anymore, thanks to heart-stealing from corpses. And Dr. Morris is like, well, too bad you missed Isabel. You were sick. That's all he says to him, is like, you were sick. It was from overwork. You're a student. It happens. Uh, but too bad you missed Isabel. Oh, well. And Ted's like, no, no, I have to, I have to go to her. And Morris is like, no, you really don't. No, I must go to her. Okay, well, if you're going to her, I'll come along. So, step four, go to see Isabel with Ted. And we already established step four is profit. We're on step five now. I see. Step five, then, is going to Isabel with Ted and basically trying to make the argument to Ted that he's too sick to ever marry Isabel because you have to be healthy to marry someone. And that therefore he should break off the engagement. And Ted doesn't believe he's sick. But as it turns out, uh, when he goes to see Isabel, basically every time Ted kind of gets upset, it's like instead of turning into the Incredible Hulk, he falls over and dies and then turns into a zombie. <laughs> so this is starting to convince Ted that like, okay, maybe I am too sick and I should call off the engagement. And it seems like that was... Morris's plan, that Ted would realize he's too sick and call off the engagement on his own, and then Morris could move in on Isabel. There is one problem, however. And that problem's name is Eric. No, that problem's name is The Antidote Doesn't Fucking Work. Well, it works, just tempor temporarily, yes. as George Zuko says. So this is, this is the thing, is Morris thought, one injection of heart stuff, and you're better. And therefore, him turning Ted into a zombie not a problem, or bad or evil or anything like that, I guess. I guess. But, turns out it's not a antidote, it's a treatment. So you have to keep doing it, otherwise you keep turning into a zombie. Which makes the whole 
thing where like, why did the Mayans ever do this? This why would you ever why is this a thing? Because you want a zombie servant then. I guess, but like at what cost, Sarah? The and, cost of a heart. We've been through this. Right. So now they have to keep getting hearts from like the cemetery. And Ted refuses to leave Isabel's side. So they're following Isabel from town to town on her tour, digging up corpses in each city and taking hearts. Now, the reason why Isabel does not want to marry Ted is named Eric. Eric Iverson, her definitely probably white with that name, uh, piano player, who is played by Taran Bay, who is putting on like a sophisticated Englishman accent for this role. Yeah, He's not very good at the accent. No. But he is sophisticated and not an idiot like Ted, so I can see what she sees in him. Plus those hands. To play the piano? Right. So... He's a good pianist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, eventually, several bodies deep into this murder... I guess it's not a murder spree. They were already dead. They have committed murder by this point. Yeah, I suppose. They, like, at one point nearly get caught by, like, a cemetery caretaker and have to kill him and take his heart. So they're fairly deep into this problem, halfway through the concert tour, and Isabel comes to Dr. Morris and she's like, Ted won't fucking leave me alone. Can you just fucking tell him that I'm not going to marry him? He'd probably take it better from you because you're a doctor and his mentor and all that nonsense, and I don't want to, like accidentally kill him because he has this weird sickness where every time he gets emotionally upset, he falls over. And Dr. Morris is like, yeah, for sure, man, I'll tell, I'll tell him. And Isabel's like, great, that'll allow me to get together with Eric finally. And Dr. Morris is like, what? <laughs> uh, so now Morris realizes that if he wants to get with Isabel, he has to get Eric out of the way. So he tells zombie Ted, you must kill Eric. And hands Zombie Ted a gun and just sort of pushes Zombie Ted out into the night. <laughs> Eric's standing around in an alley waiting for Ted because he got a note from Ted earlier saying, meet me in this alley at midnight so I can kill you. <laughs> zombie Ted is shuffling his way, sort of limply holding the gun into the alley. And right when something is about to happen in this movie, uh, Isabel just screams. Not because she saw Zombie Ted with a gun. That would be interesting. No, she just was, like, sitting around alone in her room until her anxiety got so bad that she had to come outside and scream. But... She saw shadows. That's true. So Ted, Zombie Ted, shuffles off, and Isabel comes up to uh, Eric, who was none the wiser, and he's like, what's wrong? And she's like, I guess nothing. And the story continues. Now... By this point, McClure, the reporter, remember him? He's been following them around to, like, each city, but kind of arriving after the murder, right? Like, because he's trying to figure out what's going on. And, you know, how do I know where they're going to go next? Why is this guy doing this? It must be like a surgeon because of the precision of the cuts and so on. It just so happens that another reporter from his paper has been covering Isabel's tour. And they sort of have lunch at an airport and compare notes and realize, like, oh, shit, this guy is in every city that Isabel goes to on, like, the same night. This is where we get the list of cities that sound like they should have gym leaders in them. So McClure's like, shit, okay, well, we know what the next city in the concert tour is, so I'll just get there first and, like, set up a trap. So he, like... Batman 66 is this thing by, like, going to the mortician in town and being like, we'll pretend that I'm a dead body. And then when, like, the ghoul shows up to get his heart, I'll surprise him. And that seems like a great plan until it totally backfires on him when Ted 
zombie Ted just, you know, kills him at Dr. Morris's uh, suggestion. That was kind of shocking. I, I will admit I wasn't expecting that to happen. Mm. Uh, so now McClure is dead, and the last city in the tour is the, like, home city. Like, they, they start... They, they come back. They come back. The same... University city. Right. And the University City police are like, well, shit. Now that a reporter from a newspaper here in University City is dead, I guess we better care about this. So they... Well, it's been out of their district, and now it's come back. Right. So they kind of follow up on McClure's hunches about, you know, this being connected to Isabel. They go to Isabel. They're like, hey, so you're your piano player. He's what, not white, so... What's up with him? What's up with him? And she's like, oh, it couldn't possibly be him. They're like, well, does he have any surgeon friends? And she's like, no, he doesn't have any... I mean, all of his friends are... I mean, these long pauses aren't suspicious. The cops are like, got it, and leave. And she's like, oh, no, they're going to they're gonna realize it's Ted because, oh, no, I just realized it's Ted. So she heads over to Ted and Morris's, and she's like, hey, so I think the cops think that the ghoul is a schizophrenic. Her word, not mine. Yeah. Could the, he... uh, the detectives also are homicide detectives. So... <laughs> They're homosexuals because they're homicide detectives. Yeah. Okay. So Isabel heads over to Dr. Morris and Ted, and she's like, hey, is it possible, Ted, that you're a schizophrenic? Because the police are asking about all of this and, like, what's going on and blah, blah, blah. And Morris and Ted are like, no, like, they're just grasping at straws and you're getting overexcited and just go home and everything's fine. That's what Dr. Morris says. Right. So she leaves. and Ted then, has his own realization. Yes. And Ted's like... Wait, it is me doing the things. All those horrible nightmares I had about being a zombie and cutting hearts out of people. That was me, and you did the gas thing to me, and that's why we've been getting heart. It all makes sense now. This is terrible. And Dr. Morris is like, you know what? It was an accident. I did. It's fine. I, you know? And Ted's like, fuck this shit. I'm leaving. And he heads over to the lab. And Dr. Morris is like, well, I guess I'll shoot him with a gun now. And... Ted, meanwhile, has a plan of his own, which is that he will head over to the desk and write a letter. Explaining everything. Right. Then he lets out the gas, which is colorless and odorless, of course. And then he starts just smashing beakers to get Dr. Morris's attention. And Morris comes in, and he's like, Ted, what are you doing? And Ted's like, fuck you, and then falls over and is now zombie Ted again. And Dr. Morris is like, good, good, okay, zombie Ted. You need to go kill Eric. And then, then yourself. kill yourself. And Zombie Ted is like, kill Eric, then, then myself. Yeah. And goes off. And Dr. Morris is like, cool, 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 cool. We got this all under control. Oh, shit, is that the gas open over there? I'm fucked now. I, Ted can't kill himself. I need him to get hearts for, you know, me. Which means, also, I guess, for him still. Which means we have to double our production rate of heart murder. <laughs> heart murder. So he goes off after Ted. He's like, Ted, Ted, come back. And Ted's like, kill Eric, then myself. And Morris is like, no, Ted, come back. I need you. Kill Eric, then myself. And so Ted goes to the concert hall where they're performing the last concert. And Morris is like, fuck, well, I guess I I don't have time for this. I got to go get a heart myself, I suppose. And runs off. And Ted shambles onto the stage to go shoot Eric. And the crowd is like, gasp and the uh homicide detectives who are in the audience are like oh shit son and they shoot ted 
And now with Ted dead, they're like, all right, well, that clears everything up. <laughs> we'll read this note in his hand. Ah, I see. Who's this Dr. Morris character? And you'd think that this would lead to then, you know, the detectives going after Morris and the whole thing getting wrapped up. But Morris has made his way to the cemetery where he is not in time and collapses over dead. Mummified zombied. The end. So that plot summary makes it sound like a lot more happens in this movie Nothing than it does. Nothing happens in this movie. It's, it's 60 minutes. And it's a little longer. 65. I think the problem with this movie. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I hate to say this of a guy who died, like, soon after making this. But the directing in this movie is terrible. It has, like, no energy yeah. Like, scenes that are supposed to be exciting or should have some energy to them or some excitement because, like, things are happening. Just nothing. Do you know what the director died of? Heart attack. Heart attack? So maybe he was sick. Like, maybe. It's just, like, this This movie's very lifeless. Like, <laughs> yeah. Zombies. Like, there's more... We cut away whenever there is violence. We never see anything happen. What we see a lot of in this movie is people doing things like taking off and putting on jackets like it's an episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood or Isabel singing like entire songs or people just walking to and from buildings and getting in and out of cars. But when it's time for like murder to happen, like people just sort of walk towards the camera menacingly and then the music goes and then it's the next scene. Yeah, they took the wrong techniques or the purpose behind them from Val Luton, who doesn't show anything, but does it purposefully so that there's still, like, tension and everything? And they're like, ah, so we just won't show anything also. Yeah, it's like, so what do you fill the movie with? And Val Luton's like, ah, fear of the unknown. And these guys are like, ah, concert footage. <laughs> I mean, if it worked for Phantom. It didn't, though, is the problem. Uh, it was pretty, it made a lot of money, so I think financially it worked. Sure. The weirdest thing about this movie is, like, the writing and the directing and some of the acting is on the same level as what I would expect from, like, a bargain bin Poverty Row movie. Like, yeah. one of those scripts that just makes no sense, that has lines of dialogue that just feel like it, they're being written by someone who's never heard a human being talk, yeah. or other outside of going to movies. And, like, the kind of directing where it's just like, I don't know, point the camera at them till the scene's over, and then cut. But it's made by Universal... So there's, like, this base level of competence going throughout it, right? Like, the sets aren't garbo, and, like, the lighting is competent, and, you know, like... And there's, like, some neat use of shadow in here. Yeah, like, the movie looks good in the sense that it doesn't look cheap, but it doesn't look good in the sense that, like, the camera isn't doing anything interesting. Yeah. Right? <sighs> yeah, so the directing's flat, and it's bad. And it's... Strange, like, there's no energy to this movie until maybe the climax. And I don't know if that's because nothing really seems to happen, or if because the person playing Ted is just terrible at doing anything other than, like, feeling, like, when he looks shocked at the end that he has done these things. Even that's bad, like... Yeah, it, I, it's, like, exciting because it's funny. Ted is what I was talking about, like, his actor, David Bruce, is what I was talking about when I talked about, like, a bad actor who's trying... Because David Bruce is clearly, like, trying to give some kind of performance. He just doesn't know how. And Ted just ends up coming off as an idiot. Yeah. Like, Ted's like, golly gee willikers, Dr. Morris, I sure am glad to be working with you. And Dr. Morris is like, yes, Ted, 
while working with me, I'll totally be fucking your girlfriend behind your back. And Ted's like, for sure, Dr. Morris, I do love science. Like, he's just, he's just an idiot. And then when he's zombie Ted, it's just like, zombie Ted. There's Kill no- Eric. Then myself. myself. There's nothing there. And the only thing David Bruce has going for him is a good head of hair. Yeah, it's, it's nice hair. He has nice hair. Yeah. Zuko at least can, like, bring something to the role a bit. Until the very end, when he's going after Ted, like, Ted, come back! And then even Zuko can't save the material he's been given. Yeah. Yeah, this feels like, it honestly feels like a monogram picture. Yeah. And all of Ben Piper's movies have been just terrible. Yeah, there's, like I said, a base level of competence in the filmmaking, like the production values, I guess I can say, that rises it above a Poverty Row picture. The the acting from Evelyn Anchors and Turhan Bay is just kind of there. Like, they're just here, and they're doing their thing. It's fine. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't call it bad. It's just that they have a bad script, so there's nothing for them to really work off of. And they're clearly not, like, giving this any more effort than what it's worth. Which I can't fault them for. Sure. Robert Armstrong is doing the same, like, yeah, see, meh, thing that, like has been the wisecracking reporter bit since the 30s and has been his bit since the 30s. And I'm just, it's just, I'm sick of wisecracking reporters in horror movies. It felt so out of place. Like, it felt like... Well, it felt like we were watching a movie from 1932. Yeah, it just felt so Mm old-fashioned to have that type of character. To the point where it was like, cool, he was killed. Awesome. Yeah, and that was like the only interesting idea in this movie. Because, like, you figure that he's our hero, for lack of a better word. And then, yeah, they kill him halfway through, and you're like, oh, cool, we have stakes, we have shit going on. Like, we had someone who died in this movie other than people who were already dead. This movie is so... It's not only written like the writers didn't understand horror, but it feels like it's being made by people who didn't want to make a horror movie. Yeah. Like, it feels like they were assigned to it, and the studio was like, we gotta put out another horror movie to be on the schedule for this date, for these reasons. And the people they threw together to make it were like, ah, I don't feel like it. I don't wanna. Horror movies are... Are, are dumb trash. Are dumb trash. Or, like, you know, they were squeamish about it, too, right? Like, this is one of the most squeamish horror movies. I You know, the most mild. Like, you could show this to the ratings board today, and it would get, like, a G rating. Yeah. It's The story is so stupid in the broadest of strokes. It's like, hey, this mad scientist turns this guy into a zombie so he can get with the guy's girl. Like, that's the broadest strokes version of this story. But the specifics of how all that that is accomplished is the stupidest thing I've seen in a movie in a long time. Well, it's like, it's so odd to me that they based it off of presumably, like, Aztec culture. That yeah. like the the drug and whatever when it's just a Haitian zombie. Yeah, yeah, like, and that would kind of explain why you would want like the purpose behind this ritual in the first place. They don't give any explanation for what like the ritual that the generic natives are doing this for, like except for like ritual purposes. Yeah, the natives have no reason to make this gas. Zuko has no reason to make this gas. Like, Dr. Morris, like, his research has no purpose. Honestly, it would make more sense if he was an anthropologist rather than a chemist. It would also make more sense if he was doing this, if he already had this evil plan. 
But he yeah. doesn't, right? Like, he is working on this research, and then it's like, oh, I could use this to turn this guy into a zombie to get him out of the way. But it's like, there's this drug and the heart thing has no other purpose other than to turn someone into a zombie. Yeah. And then bring him, like, it's such a convoluted fucking thing. Like, why would this be a thing anyone would research? It makes no sense. And and also, to do this, this is your plan to get with his girlfriend. Like, that's your plan. You want this guy's girlfriend, so you're going to turn him into a zombie, so he'll think he's too sick to marry her, so you can swoop in. Like, that's the plan, right? Like Yeah, that's like the most, like... Uh, if, squeamish plan too. Well, like it's not like to kill him. It's to like spook him enough to that he'll think he's too sick to get married. Which like that's a this is. There are other ways to get a dude sick. Like put a diuretic in his food and have him over for dinner, and then be like, oh, I guess you're sick. Like, oh, I'm gonna kill the guy and put him. You know, give him fucking zombie juice and turn him into the undead. To get him to not marry his girlfriend. Like, if you're gonna go that far, just fucking murder him. Like, Yeah, don't don't half-ass it. Don't make him undead. Make him full dead. Yeah. The movie's just very dumb, and most of it is nothing happening. Yeah. Or people talking about things that happen off-screen. When things do start to happen, and there are exciting events, the filmmaking is so bland... Dead that you don't even, you can't get excited by any of it. It comes off as ridiculous. Yeah. I was having fun watching this. Not because the movie was good, but because I was riffing. Because this is the kind of movie that riffing is made for, that Mystery Science Theater is made for. Yeah. Like, if you look at Devil Bat, which is, like, ridiculous and funny and is a heck of a good time, that movie I don't want to riff on too hard because... Everyone in it is trying. Mm. Not a lot of people are trying in this movie, and nothing's happening, too. So when nothing's happening, it feels better, to me anyways, if I, I feel better about riffing on it, because it's like, well, if nothing's going to happen, I'll make something happen. The kind of movies that make good mystery science theater movies. Mm. The kind of movies where it's fun to make fun of them. There's stuff where it's like, hey, these guys were trying, they really wanted to make something good, and they just couldn't for reasons. Mm -hmm. And it feels mean, right, to make fun of them. So that's on, like, one end of the spectrum. And on the other end of the spectrum, it's like, this was a good movie in its day, and you're just being an asshole by being like, well, here in 2019, I can see the strings on the thing. You know, and you're ignoring the cultural context of, like, why this movie's good or important or whatever. Yeah. And in the middle there, there are movies like this, where this wasn't made by a bunch of scrappy upstarts trying to make their way in the world. This was made by a bunch of tired professionals who didn't give a fuck. It was made by a big studio that had money but didn't care. And the story is stupid and makes no sense, and it's acted by people who have no talent. And nothing happens. So it's like, yeah, this is an okay one to make fun of. You know what I mean? Yeah. You have to kind of hit this sweet spot for me, for me to have fun riffing on a movie. And this is the perfect kind of movie. Like, this movie is dumb. Yeah. Uh, I'm tired of talking about this. Want to move on to ranking? For sure. So, so I, I have, like, a verge, but I kind of have, like, a specific spot. Oh, okay. Interesting. I do want to say, to be clear, this is a horror movie? Yes. For sure. Okay. Yeah. 
it's, it's just bad. Yeah, I think it's important to say sometimes because like yeah. There's no horror in this movie, right? Nothing in the movie is actually scary. It rarely feels like anything's really trying to be scary. So it's like is this a horror movie or not? But it is. It's just important sometimes to draw the line of like what makes a movie a certain genre is the intent. Yes. Not the effectiveness. Just because it sucked at being horror doesn't mean it's not horror, right? Because that would get it almost off the hook for sucking, you know? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, my spot is below the crime of Dr. Crespi and above the monster walks. Hmm. Crespi's at 93, monster walks is at 94. Okay, well, that spot's in my range, so we can probably just go there. My range was below the monster, which is at uh, 90, and... Above Torture Ship, which is at 103. But since that spot is kind of in there, what was that spot below Crespi and above Monster Walks? Yeah. And the reason I chose this spot, like, because I, I did kind of go through this area, I felt that, like, stuff actually happens in the Come of Dr. Crespi. Like, those long stretches of, like, nothing, but shit happens, man. And, like, D- Dwight Fry gets, like, tied up in a closet at one point and the people making it are really trying and they really do some like spooky things with with shadow but monster walks nothing really happens monster walks is garbage yeah it's garbage so i was like you know what like let's put this above monster walks the mad ghoul did something interesting with killing off the reporter whereas the monster walks had an opportunity of doing something cool with the dad who couldn't walk in the monster walks. And right, and it didn't end up being it. that. It was yeah, just it was a fucking a, ape. Yeah, it was an ape in the basement. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I was looking, the only reason why I would think about maybe ranking it lower mm. is the Melies movies, because you know, I thought, okay, this is definitely better than Torture Ship, because Torture Ship is barely recognizable as a movie. Yeah. Um, above Torture Ship is House of Mystery, which has worse production values than this, and a less original story, if that's possible. Sure. But I was like, ah, do I feel good about putting this above the Melia's movies when the Melia's movies have, like, creativity and were, like, creative and had artistry for them, even if there's, they're, you know, they're just weird little shorts? But they're fantastical. They're not, they're not horror. Mm, okay. Well... Because the horror genre hadn't really developed by that point. So in, a, in terms of ranking horror movies... I don't know if I feel comfortable ranking this movie where it's horror, it's just, like, not done super well, um, below movies that, like, weren't quite, like, they weren't trying to do horror because horror hadn't been defined yet. Okay. Well, then I'm I'm fine with putting it uh, where you want to put it then. Okay. So entering the list at number 94 is The Mad Ghoul from 1943, directed by James Hogan. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes that we've mentioned today, as well as an appeals box. If you would like to submit an appeal for this or any other ranking, any questions, concerns, anything of that ilk, you can submit it through our Ask Box on Tumblr, or email us directly at screamscenepodcast.gmail.com. You can also talk to us directly on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can listen to us on the podcasting app of your choice by subscribing to our RSS feed. And if you'd like to help the show out, you can leave us a rating or a review if your podcast service of choice allows you to do so. 
You can also tell a friend about us on social media or face-to-face. And if you'd really like to give us a hand, you can head over to patreon.com slash podcast where you can help support the show for as little as a dollar a month. The money we get on Patreon helps to pay our hosting costs, goes towards us getting better equipment down the line, and if we hit our first Patreon goal of $150 a month, we'll start doing an extra episode every month on horror-adjacent movies. Stuff like Young Frankenstein, or The Addams Family, or The Brendan Fraser Mummy. Things that aren't really horror, but have kind of a... Ties. Ties to the horror genre, yeah. So that's patreon.com slash Podcast. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah, we are back at RKO with Val Luton and Mark Robson's The Ghost Ship. Oh, neat. I was wondering when we'd be back at RKO because we had like two or three in a row. Cool. I guess I needed some time to crank out the next one. Yeah. That'll hopefully just wash the taste of this out of my mouth. <laughs> Well, we will see you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye.